game-changing ideas, fresh initiatives and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on the future. I'd like to think we're working towards a fairer world with a bit more compassion mixed with a combination of smarts and kindness. Today my guest is Jennifer Sirtle. Jennifer is an internationally recognised influencer in social media and thought leader in the emerging field of corporate consciousness. A business strategist, she is president and founder of Agility 3R, a leadership development company dedicated to strengthening strategic skills and helping leaders become more resilient, responsive and reflective. She is co-author of Strategy, Leadership and the Soul, published by Triarchy Press. She's currently social media ambassador on site for Social Innovation Summit held biannually in Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley. Jennifer serves as strategic advisor to MedTech Association. She's community creator for International Centre for Information Ethics. She's involved in the Asia Institute and BRIC CCI Centre for CSR in India, caring deeply about equity and pay. She is a global ambassador for getting to 50-50, or hashtag, I should say, getting to 50-50 movement. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. That was a bit of a mouthful. Uh, I know, I should have, just the first part would have been just fine. <laughs> but thank you so much. So listen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Despite the time difference, I was grateful you were super flexible and were able to have this conversation at 7 a.m. your time. So thank you. How's New York feeling today, Jennifer? Oh, it's it's absolutely beautiful. Um, it, you know, I live in Rochester, New York, and we've had um, a little bit of a late spring. In fact, I don't think we had spring. It went straight to summer. Oh. Um, but it's it's a really beautiful day. And um, and and sometimes, because I sometimes do work in, um, with people in India, 5, 5 a.m. is when I start. So I feel like 7 a.m. is no problem. <laughs> Well, I just wondered if you had a little bit of Jocko Willink going with you because I was thinking, wow, she she gave me such a large amount of time to work with. I mean, a 5 a.m. start was, I thought it was pretty motivated, Jennifer. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I can do that, but I'm not going to do it to you. 7 a.m. is the earliest I'd make you do it. Oh, that's great. That's great. Thank you so much. And I think that's the thing is that um, if you're working in a global community, you really have to be respectful of what are the times that they work. Yes, that's right. So, uh, yeah, well, I mean, we're all, I think we're all working early mornings and late nights for that reason. So, listen, tell me a little bit about what you do, Jennifer, and the many roles you play. I've, I've done a bit of reading, and I mean, you've got so many different skill sets. Perhaps if you could start with your background, that'd be really helpful. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for asking. So, um, essentially, I got my degree in existential philosophy over 30 years ago, which is kind of crazy to say. But the, the beautiful thing about existential philosophy is it believes that things are, are changed by the environments that they're in. And been a, I've always just been a voracious reader and trying to frame things, you know. So I think even though it may seem like I do a lot of things in every medium I'm a part of, I'm there to help frame 
the question or frame the culture um, and, and ultimately um, everything. The thing that's so interesting about technology today is everything is going around authentication. Everything is going to identity. And believe it or not, you know, as a 19-year-old at University of Colorado, I was in the thick of studying, you know, identity, belonging. And so I've lived my entire life realizing that everything at its core is about identity and belonging. And in some ways, part of the work that I was reading that you've certainly written about in some of your articles is about the connectivity that everyone has as well with nature, humans and other species. I certainly felt like it wasn't just a human focus that you had. No, I think, you know, and the, and the challenge is that we, I, I see a lot of written about biomimicry and, and it makes me kind of chuckle because it's as if we're not part of nature, you know, the more the more we actually look at how trees use the root system, for instance, mm. that that's the opening around resource sharing and communication. And so, hopefully, that has a, a, you know that's applicable to your audience. Yeah, well, and listen, networks as well. When you think about, it was really interesting. I was talking to a guest on the show, Julian, who was talking about mushrooms, and I had no idea about the network underneath the ground of fungi that that are almost like an internet for trees and they all communicate to each other through this internet underground and I mean in a way that kind of is very synergistic with what you've just said it's like yeah there, there are these networks out there there's a lot of biomimicry that's going on and it's been happening for a very long time it's not new no no it's not and, you know my daughter is um she's a she's a senior at university of michigan and for the summer she's in athens greece and she's sending me these pictures of 3000 bc and i look and, and we just had you know we had a skype conversation around how much has really changed? You know, so it's like, um, you know, the root system's gone on for billions of years, and and we're we're now we're now just kind of talking about network effects mm. as if we're brilliant. Like, no, we're not brilliant. We're just starting to pay attention to nature. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of humility wouldn't go astray with some of those thought leaders out there, Jennifer. Yes. <laughs> That was Cha-Cha to let us know that we had a bit of a recording glitch, Jennifer and I, and so we are moving swiftly on to other topics of conversation. Hope you don't mind. I will say my son, um, who's now 11, when he was four, Lizzie, this is amazing because I was going to speak at a CIO conference for Marist College, Yeah. and I'm driving him to daycare, and all of a sudden he's like, you know, and I'm late, right? Of course I'm late and running. And all of a sudden he's like, mommy, does your heart remote control people? And, and I have to say I was hit by, um, it, it was the first time in my life that I realized it was, um, so 2011, I realized he would never know the difference between virtual reality and reality. Yes, that's true. It's, it's and, and an unusual concept, isn't it? For, for us, there's, there's reality and then there's virtual reality, but it just, to me, hit me in the heart that he will really not know the difference. Mm-hmm. It is a bit of a stretch. I mean, I do think augmented reality and virtual reality are going to have an enormous impact on people's perspective on, on even how they treat each other and compassion and empathy. I, I, I'm hoping that the, 
they're used in a productive or, or positive way and as tools to see how people that are less fortunate than you are living, for instance, because you can almost become them or live their reality through VR and AR. But, you know, sometimes there are those negative feelings that I have of, are we all just going to be quite disconnected? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons why I'm so vigilant in the work that I do is that I think that technology is neutral. It doesn't care whether you have benevolent or, you know, whether you're good or bad. It doesn't really care how you're going to use it. And the challenge that we have is that I want more noble souls to be technically sophisticated Mm. because um, communication and information do scale through technology. And if, in fact, you're not able to use the technology to get your message out Um, people that are actually doing um, things that are extractive versus value creating Mm. will actually have more penetration. Yeah. Yeah. There's no bias with the tech. It really, but do you know what it's going to really take? And it's the space that I think you are working in, which is the leadership space. I mean, in ethics, I mean, the general interface between you talked about the self and the psyche. I mean, what do you mean by that? Do you want to go in, do you want to go in depth about that a little bit? Absolutely. Well, I think, so the, the good news is, is that I think that the ethical conversations are being had more frequently and, um, you know, I'm lucky to be moderating for, um, for, for conversations around that. The, the self and the psyche is that I think we are impacted so much by our peer group that mm. it's important that we find out who we are before we participate. And unfortunately, you know, I'm working mostly with people in businesses, although um, recently I was at an event for um, Girl Up and there were eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds there. And I was very surprised how easy it was for them to get the conversation I was having. And so the, the idea is that we, in Clay Shirky, in, in our you know, collective spaces, said this brilliant thing is that our issue today is not information overload, it's filter failure. Yeah, right. And so if we, if we can identify who we are and create a filter, it will fortify us as we navigate through, through whatever it is that we do. So from a, from a DNA perspective, they say that there's a triple helix. Yeah. Um, the tri- a triangle is the strongest physical feature. And so, you know, when I do um, strategy with the company, I, I say, how are you going to market? And if they say adaptability, know-how, and speed, right, which is often what is being said now, then we create a behavioral model that helps them look for how will you hire people that are, are hardwired for adaptability, know-how, and velocity. You know, so yeah, you can create- kind of what does that look like? Because it's the people that are going to be delivering that, isn't it? Exactly. And so, and you can't control their social media. You can't control how they make decisions. But what you can do is create a filter that in our culture, this is what we mean by adaptability. This is what we mean by know-how. This is what we mean by speed. And you can create a whole ecosystem that tells stories, amplifies, and hires for those particular ways in which not only do you name the quality, but then how you articulate it in your culture. Now, how that, how that applies to individuals is that I ask each person, 
who are 18 people that you hope to meet in your lifetime? And many oh, times... Interesting. That's a good way to... That's actually a great way to find their filter too. Quite self-reflective. Isn't that great? Because first of all, it allows, allows you to acknowledge the people who, you know, if someone has your ear, they have your life. So by being asked who are 18 people, you then get to actually name and claim who, who you're shaping your life after. Mm. And I've, I've never, you know, I've been doing this practice that this particular Elite 18 since 2005, and I've never seen someone's list where a pattern didn't emerge. So then you take it to, out of all these 18 people named with why they're on the list, you then can come up with the theme in threes and say if it's, you know, if it's impact, inspiration, or um, power, right? Mm. You then can create a behavior model that has making sure that you are honoring your own design. I have to tell you, Lizzie, it's been a long journey because I was at Blue Cross Blue Shield and I was hiring leadership coaches to come in. You know, I then took some time to write a book with uh, Kobe Huberman, and it was about leadership. And we came up with a core competency model. And then in my, I'm now, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s. Again, I hold on to mid-40s as long as I can. Um, I, I now throw it out the window and say every single person has a leadership model. Wow. They, just, they just need someone to ask them, who are you, your elite 18? And then from that, create a model. And so even in a company that has 160 employees, there'll be 160 designs, but everyone is claiming if they emulate who they admire, they actually will act in a way conducive to progress, conducive to collaboration, and conducive to personal best. I mean, it sounds like a fantastic model. I guess my speculation around that is would people start to, form similar models because there are thought leaders out there that are super popular. And so you'd find that the 18, you know, in the social media space specifically, there are so many thought leaders and very popular ones. And so do you find people are just honing into those specific individuals like Bill Gates and, you know, Melinda Gates and all of, you know, that that whole crowd and that that therefore means that they're a little less creative because the social media aspect of our lives has kind of narrowed down our focus and narrowed down those influences that we may have found before if we were just reading more extensively. Well, I love your point about reading more extensively. I love your point. Yes, many times people don't actually have 18 people, but, um, but when you do it at the granular level, now this is why I'm, I'm not that famous. I'm not, I haven't created a scalable model. It's simply that because the last thing I want in cultures is for people to be having bragging rights about who's on their elite, elite 18 list versus somebody else. Mm. It, it's, it's a sacred process. And in the list of people, you find that there might be three famous people but the rest of the list are people that they actually know and actually have stories about. Oh, fantastic. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I maybe misinterpreted it. I was thinking 18 people, very well known, maybe influences in the world. And I thought, no, I think that's right. Please tell me you're not going away. 
No, 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 I'm oh. here. I'm here. No, I'm here. <laughs> because, I'm just saying. Can I'm you just imagine saying. now? No, no, no. Now when I hear silence, I go, oh, <laughs> no, not again. I think, yes. So elite, elite, I think we've done an, ex- in, I have to say as an American, I think that we have done a disservice because we favor exceptionalism, right? Mm. I don't have cultures that I work in design around outliers, right? Elon Musk is an outlier. Steve Jobs is an outlier. Mm. They are not normal people. They are not people that people can actually emulate. It's inaccurate to do that. Mm. Um, if, If I work with people individually, it's really the stories and who's influenced them and who, you know, literally in ninth grade, who's the teacher that actually invited you to step up or who's the teacher that said you do have a dream. It's worthwhile. You know, Mm -hmm. um, the lists become very competitive unless you're in a personal environment and then you Mm -hmm. can make it sacred, which is again, why I think I've only written one article about the lead 18 and I, I, I talk about it. Um, but I haven't made it a model. There's people that are like, do an app for that. No, like that's the worst possible thing. If I'm talking about human psyches, um, and let, let's just say there are people that have created strategies around doing viral videos, right? They never go viral. If the intent is viral, it will never go viral. <laughs> if the intent is thought leadership, you'll never be a thought leader. It's about resonance. I always say this. You are not a node. You're a fre- frequency. And if we together can fine-tune a way to create language around your frequency, then you can practice impeccability. And in that practice, you will be invited places that you would never self-select. I'm sorry, but I am now going to use that for the rest of my life. You are not a node. You are a frequency. I love that. I love that. This is exactly the point. And, and that, you know, that's the, you resonated with me. We resonated. It, and Ashaka, you know, like the whole community we're a part of, we, we found each other that's by ways that uncommon because we're vibrating to a, you're about the compassionate use of wisdom at scale. Well, I'm hoping that we do have a more compassionate future, and I'm hoping that whilst whilst I've been working in the tech space, I think we've got the capacity for it to be a far more just society as well. I mean, you talk about decentralisation. I don't know whether you want to talk about that a little bit more, but decentralisation is huge for me as a as a way for a fairer world particularly if you're looking at technology like blockchain for instance one i think it where have i got it i've got it i loved your saying that i saw on i think it was linkedin or your website and and you just said it is no longer country versus country or city versus city today ideas are countries and that coupled with the capacity for blockchain to decentralize what had been very central institutions controlling people and controlling countries within within boundaries. I thought, oh, my God, yes, ideas can become countries. Absolutely, and we're getting much more sophisticated at cross-border payments. And boy, oh, boy, is that scary for banks. Yes, um, absolutely, and scary for governments as well because we're talking about identity and, you know, the potential for sovereign identity. And right. I'm sure states and governments aren't that keen on that. They'll lose a lot of power. Who's going to pay them taxes? 
Yeah, it's that, you know, I think where I'd like to stay in this is that there's a gentleman named Michelle Bowens that is the founder of the Peer to Peer Foundation. I've been lucky to be in his community um, since 2011, and um, I can share some links. And then I also was involved for about four months with the Holochain uh, group that oh, have, yeah, that have created, um, you know, they have created ways in which people can actually have their own server. And, and if you think about the Elite 18 model is really, now that you're saying this, it's a de decentralized leadership model. Um, I think at one point there was a list of over 900 ICOs. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I know there's, there's many, many more than that. But when many people, um, now the ICOs are getting backed by resources and it's become like a new trading game. But, but it, if we go to the beginning of the ICO, it, it really, initial coin offering really was about the community. And, and if people can understand that decentralization is all about participation, mm. who are you, what groups you belong with, actually identify who you are and now how your money is made and how your money is traded is all part of your identity yeah and what i find really interesting was that token i mean you talk about holochain but i was reading something else where you were talking about was it mark pesky or yes yes yeah he's I mean, the first how amazing was that? I mean, I just thought, wow. I mean, there's a strong thing that I guess I want to drill down on a bit, and that was the human aspect that we all share. But, you know, as individuals, we do share different layers of creativity and intellect and chutzpah and opinions, and, and you know, this is worth something, you know, and particularly in the space, in the kind of attention economy. And I noticed that you wrote an article about that as well, which... Yeah, talk about it a little bit, but I thought, yes, there's, you know, that's all in line with decentralization, isn't it? Yeah, boy, oh boy. So we, um, in Australia, there's just this beautiful futurist named Mark Pesch, actually, who um, is the first person that tokenized himself. Um, and I think I wrote an article um, saying that um, David Bowie would actually have been the first tokenized person had he been at this space and time. And there's an amazing link that he did about the dance between an audience and the performer. And um, he predicted there'd be a blurred line between the two. Mm -hmm. Mark, Mark did, um, being in Australia, um, you know, and a futurist, he worked out the financing and how to do it so that he actually created tokens of his, himself. And so how, um, exactly, how does that work? I mean, he called it a what was it? I'm sure yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a personal attention token. A personal attention token, a pat yeah, token. <laughs> yeah, literally like a pat on the back. And 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 again, I think that the challenge is this: is that in one way he commoditized himself, but then you look at it, it's like, isn't that what we do all the time anyway? And is it is it better to self-select? to jump into that space or is it a, is it a sign of a, of a dystopian, um, which is kind of why I'm friends with him. And I wanted, I, I in, in a kind of a bravado kind of way, I wanted to be the first tokenized woman. And, and then when I started looking into the, the, I don't have enough sophistication for the economic piece and the complexity of it. Um, and I also think in this space, it's quite dangerous. There's some pretty dangerous people in the space. Um, but anyway, so Mark, Mark has been very transparent about um, his process. And so when people 
spend time, um, get a token, and that token entitles them to time with him. Yeah, because it's like it's a currency. It's almost like the token represents currency, isn't it? Like he's a currency, so he has value, and you 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 spend money or you use your tokens to do certain things with him or absolutely you know. think, of, think of it as a jukebox and then yes, like, exactly. so it's got this so but i was worried that it's commoditizing being a human being i just couldn't work it out i thought it was yes. fascinating but i thought where's the line i mean it, it was it's almost beyond my comprehension yeah, my, mine too, which is kind of why I'm in the space of, of, so what I do is I interview people that have spent their token with Jukebox. Um, I hope he's okay with me saying this. I'm, gonna, I'm sure he's going to hear this and probably have a good laugh. And, and, and really um, learning from them, because to me, I'm attracted to the people that are attracted to him, right? Yeah. Because there's a whole ecosystem around it. And I have... I haven't done it yet, but um, Eleanor Olstrom was the first woman that got a Nobel Prize in economics, and she did it all on the commons. She has a beautiful work on, you know, eight principles of the commons in a decentralized area, whatever. So what I'm envisioning is, how do we create an economic model where all the people that participate get a return? And I, I love the number 18. And I'm thinking, like, if, if people invested in the, my vision of a token, but I couldn't work it out, was if I had 18 tokens over 18 months, people would purchase the token, and then 18% of the value would go back to everyone that invested in that time period okay. as a return. Because I, I see Patreon, and I see crowdfund, I see, I see people give their life to other people's lives, which yeah. I think is great. But I'm wanting a way for that life to give back because yeah. anytime I'm invested in, I actually like when people give me their elite 18 list and I work with them on how to use them strategically. Yeah. I'm a better person. I'm enhanced by the, I'm enhanced every, I'm enhanced by this call, you know, and, and I want there to be regeneration. And is there a, so I'm thinking, how do I create an Ulster model? that allows the people that participate in an ecosystem to get a return from that participation. And but do you feel, in a way, saying that, do you feel that in some ways that is where uh, potentially personal cryptocurrencies may go in the tokenization of human value in interactions, whether it's trade, whether it's relationships, whether, I, I just don't know. Yeah, I do. I, there's actually a movie called Time, and um, it's where people are given a certain amount of minutes, and they're given um, a QR code. And what ends up happening is that wealthy people um, actually take the lives of other people by sucking up their time. And the first time I ever wrote about Mark Fesh, I actually put that in because the issue is that we think – we have all we have is time and value and how we use that time and how that how that time enhances our happiness you would think and it, it should it, it shouldn't be enhances my ability to have a better brand like to me to have a better brand is such a, an unworthy goal to have a sense of community you know belonging it's all about we're all trying to belong but right now you're cool if you belong to that club my son wants to be a youtuber how do you think i feel about that I mean, 
<laughs> Welcome to the club, babe, is all I can say. Welcome to the club. I've got a 16-year-old and he's like, oh, no, actually, they're pretty cool. But, you know, but they're in the performance space and everyone does talk about the YouTubers and the gamers and, and you, yeah, it's, it's another world to me. I, I, I try and not dismiss it. I try and enter their, their world and understand it. But it is a challenge, isn't it? Well, I would say there's a movie called Ready Player One. Yeah, and yeah, yeah this, I just saw it with my son again. My son is eleven, and I own—I really—I haven't yet written about it, but I, I will write about it because it—it it, it really gets gives it almost gives me a chance to understand what he does when he goes into Minecraft world, and the ethical dilemmas are so complex, and um, and so like you know to be useful here in in with your audience is that. There's never been a more important time than now to decide who you are and name three values, you know, innovation, um, decentralization, community, it, it, you know, grace, wisdom. I mean, just you know, out of interest, I mean, you're working in the in leadership space, you're working with companies, you're working with individuals. What are, what are half a dozen, therefore, of the, the strongest qualities that people are, are looking to for the future. I mean, I personally think community is going to be huge in the future. It's not the community is not big now, but I do think that with decentralization will be stronger local communities. I, I, I think um, it's community, it's impact and voice. Okay. And, and so, cause no matter how you're communicating what channel you have to have a point of view and so how you know so my work is clarifying their point of view and then helping them create behavioral models by which they understand the storytelling in their culture but every person um, you know so writing in a journal is that if I know what I'm practicing um, like can you give me a word that resonates as a core value of why you're doing this program? Oh, why? Probably a core value, but it's, is it a core value? Or oh. I'm just trying to, I wanted to do an exercise, but I actually wanted to make it relevant for you. Mm. Uh, why do I do this? For, it's a value, giving, really. Okay. okay. The core value of, for me is to give. Okay, so if I, are you comfortable if I use the word generosity? Absolutely. Okay, so then what I would say is that if, if one of your three words is generosity, then in a journal once a week, I would just have you say, where was, a, where was a chance that I actually was generous and felt aligned and resonant with the way I was generous? And then a delta would be a chance where I wish I could have been or would have been more generous. Mm, so that if, yeah, so that if I have people practicing their three words and saying, let's look for articles and stories that emulate generosity, right? It then becomes just like that new car that you want to buy and every, every person's driving that car. It's like Exactly. You can see it yeah. everywhere and it becomes, you just start to create a new environment right. around you. It, and, then, and then because we do plus delta, right? The plus is... I am a generous person. And then the delta is I'm becoming more and more generous. And so we want to catch ourselves in where we can be. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and for some people, I would even say the people that I do coach that have chosen the word generosity, the issue is that they've been too generous. Mm-hmm. And, and it's showing up in different ways in their life where they've been passive aggressive. And so um, I'm working with one person in particular around where generosity was a default, not a choice. Mm. And so we had to hone in on when you give, do you really give freely or are you giving to learn to earn love? You know, I'm not saying that's the case for you. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that. Yeah, but are you giving unconditionally or is it a default and is there yes, or, a reason or are you, that? Yes. Or are you giving too much? This particular person was actually giving too much and not actually um, healthy enough to give as much as he had wanted to give. And my job in coaching him was that you cannot, you cannot give away what you do not have. And, and you know what I mean? So the self-protection came in and, and it's like, why are all the generous people so generous and, and takers so takey? And the issue is that I, need to be, I do want to do Why are the takers so takey? <laughs> That's hilarious. But anyway, so just, just, you know, so how do you, you know, so naming and claiming a theme, whether it be for a business or for an individual, allows the whole culture to know where to strengthen its attention. Mm. Well, it certainly gives you the, the foresight, I think, and the tools in a way to start creating your own future. Because if you're working on those three values and you're writing about them and you're trying to create more of those values in your life because you're conscious of them, I think you're in a position to change your own future and your reality, which is huge. I mean, that's a huge psychological benefit, but it does take a lot of reflection, Jennifer. Well, I love, I mean, I think it's the, the, the idea that you resonate. Like if, in fact, you name and claim your resonance, right? Generosity is, is a frequency in which you emulate, right? It, 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 it changes your intentionality. And I do believe that intention comes before behavior and behavior comes before outcome. Mm. So it's all, you know, it's all, it's so hard. It's all connected. You're going to have to come over here, Jennifer, and run some workshops or do some serious... Have you been to Australia before? I mean, I know you've been obviously working... I, no, it's... You know what? And Mark Mark is someone... I look forward to you interviewing Mark. I think he'd be a fascinating guest for you, and he's there, yeah. and I would love to. I literally... I literally, if I can, you know, figuring out a client and, and figuring out how to Absolutely. fund it, and literally I will be there, and I, I'll definitely... <laughs> It I is know. Cute. There's a couple of people who I'd love to, but I'm sure Mark Pesch could try and work out a way to uh, introduce you to a couple of clients that would be fascinated with some of the outcomes in bringing you down here. So you haven't been to Australia before? No, I have, I have not been. But, you know, my daughter's been to New Zealand and now, you know, she's in Greece. I feel like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, I, you know, um, I, I, Asia... Asia has been the place that's most resonant. Like Asia's invited me over, which has been great. But Australia, um, it's now on my bucket list. I will be there next year. <laughs> Very good. I hope so. Fantastic. Well, listen, um, there are a couple of other things. What, what is it that you feel like you do? I've got to wrap it up in a few minutes. So I just thought I'd ask you a little bit about your you know, personal well-being. I mean, what, what do you do? Do you feel every day that kind of contributes to your well-being? Is there a well, certain practice that you have? Is it, some, is it your diet? Is it, you know, what is it that you feel you do? 
Well, so, and, and it, this is kind of a, interesting is that I was working with a manufacturing company that had a, a glass cutting machine. The company is Optimax and they had a CNC machine that cut glass. And I realized that they treated that machine better than I treated myself. Mm. So, so my, you know, I do, I do yoga. I wish I could meditate. Um, that is something I hope to learn, but yoga to me has been a way for me to, um, you know, deliberately practice presence and feeling the ground and feeling grounded. But the, the, um, the, the, the way that I do my capacity planning is that I have an 18 month calendar and I reverse engineer. I think I've been doing the tokenized thing for a while because since 2007, I have 200 Watts of brilliance to deploy. Oh and I think it could be hours, but I just say, you know, I have 200 watts. And so if I have an 18 month calendar and design for 90 day increments, then I know how much do I, I spend myself before I spend myself. How much time do I write? How much time am I coaching? How much time am I building my network and, you know, responding and doing administration? How much time am I reading? How much time am I doing social media? And all of that is in a capacity model. And so I design only around 80%. So 20% of my capacity can be uh, open for calls like this, you know, and, but um, it really has been um, journaling, the plus Delta practice, yoga, and then really being impeccable with how I use my wattage. Yeah, right. Because I don't know, I just think, you, you know, you're very sparkly and I'm thinking there's a lot of energy there. But what I love about what you're saying is actually it's quite strategic. And in some ways you're a foresight thinker, which is that, you know, you are forecast planning and backcasting. So, in fact, you're going, you know, you're, I'm not surprised you're doing very well for yourself at the moment, Jennifer, with a very strong following. I, you know, again, I try not to, the, the, um, Eric Hoffer once said that you will never be able to overestimate the impact your influencers have on you. And, and so, um, journaling and yoga have been so great because the last thing I want to do is try and be attractive. I, I really, I really believe I'm living my life's purpose and it requires a great deal of impeccability. It requires a real, uh, tremendous amount of truth telling to myself. Yeah. Um, it is a blood sport, honestly, some of the things that, that I'm in the middle, you know, like it's, it's not easy to own the truth of a self. <laughs> yeah. And also quite confronting when you're doing some work with people who are discovering some truth they don't quite like either. It's, you know, it's a kind of, it's a sacred space really, isn't it, where you share those very intimate confronting feelings with them it's it's you kind of have to be able to hold them I love that I love that and I know that we're wrapping up but the idea of the witness you know fewer people are in religion formalized religion and I I do I do believe that being witnessed you know observing someone in the struggle of being a human compassionately is a place that human beings have so much work to do and, and, and it's so sad. I love that you use the word sacred. It is sacred work. Mm, mm. And we have lost it. I do think that that's something that when I talk about a compassionate future, it's certainly where I'm having a psych background myself and working with people um, who have had very challenging backgrounds. You feel that what they need is, you know, to, be, to feel connected in a relationship with people around them to feel like that they can contribute 
to a community and that community gives back to them as well. But to have that intimacy of that one-on-one time to go through stuff, that takes a lot of self-reflection. It takes a lot of guts as well, I think. So, you know, it's... um, it sounds really interesting. I didn't realise the work you were doing was just so deep from a psychological point of view. It's just fantastic. Well, I, you know, again, there's so much to talk about, but thank you so much for letting me go. You know, you, you created the space for us to go where we went, which is, um, which, you know, it's a great, not everyone wants to go this deep and we can go deeper. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, we could do it again. I mean, I'm just conscious that I'm wanting to keep it in, you know, just have a couple more minutes to have asked a couple of more personal questions because the other thing I was going to ask you was just about your reading. You're clearly an avid reader. And when I was looking at the books that you read, I thought, I haven't read any of those books. And in a way, because of the the information that I was reading about you, it's really inspired me to go and read these books that I, I don't, I mean, I'm clearly not very well read, Jennifer, because I don't know. Who some of these people are like shift the art of possibility oh. is a, is one i've heard of but i haven't read shift sounds fantastic i mean the death of expertise i think is amazing but there was a whole bunch other there I, sherry yeah. turkle yeah. you know and i'm like wow you're a reader you're seriously reading game-changing reading too well i think i think what i've always asked people to do is to read a business book and a, a book on history and um, and poetry or literature or literature at you know and I'd say if someone listening would just read one book a month right mm. that would just be twelve books a year mm. and 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 to me it is not too much to ask to read twenty minutes a day you know um, and if you can um, I read an hour a day I've read an hour a day since I was eight years old yeah. Um, but, but if I could influence anybody, it would be, you know, think of a business book, think of a history book. You know, I would add philosophy in that. Like if it was, you know, something that's either philosophy or history and then either poetry or literature yeah. because it's storytelling in context is yeah. really what changes us. And if I read only business books, I would not be that interesting. If I read only history, um, I may not be inspired. And if I read only literature i may not be able to ground it into business today yeah but i mean it's a bit similar to what naval ravikant said who is you know a big silicon valley investor and his thing is just read junk if it's if it's if just reading junk actually gets you to read more that's okay because as long as you get into the habit of reading more, you'll end up reading less junk over time and you'll start to read the stuff like the business books and you might get interested in, in more in-depth fiction and things like that. But it's really about just sit down and read. Just sit down and read. Yeah, you have to reverse engineer time and, and you know, and reading real books. And we've learned that writing in a real journal and reading real books actually is different in terms of how the brain processes the information. Mm, exactly. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Jennifer. I'm going to write everything that you've written, you've said in the podcast in the show notes. And uh, anyone that needs to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Is it probably your Twitter handle, which I'll put in the show notes as well? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because I have I have direct message on, and it's Jennifer Sertle, and I think it's probably the best way. Um, and I, you know, thank you so much for having me, and having this conversation was delightful. 
Thank you so much, darling. You take care. All right, cheers.